Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome. My name is Gabby Ramya. I'm the current head of School of Social and Political Sciences within the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the university. It's my role here largely ceremonial to welcome you to this excellent event on the Q Forum, which we're all, all looking forward to. Can I acknowledge Professor James Dederian to my left, he's going to take over my seat in just a few moments and he's going to introduce our experts to my right. Uh, before I go much further, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their lands, their ancestral lands, that the University of Sydney is built. There is a movement, a very good movement, I think, within our university for some of us to really um, pay closer attention to how we acknowledge country and make it more meaningful. Can I perhaps suggest that we contemplate for a moment the significance of the fact that this has been a seat of learning and knowledge generation for hundreds of thousands of years. So with, with that in mind, uh, we are the School of Social and Political Sciences, which houses the Centre for International Security Studies, which has uh, Professor James Dederian as its, um, as its director. I should also, I'm very pleased to say that recently we've had the news, as some of you may know, that um, congratulations is in order for our centre and for James, because they've been ranked 34th best university-affiliated research centre, according to the 2017 Global Go-To Think Tank, Think Tank Index Report, one of the world's great research centres. Well done, James and Sis. We consider our school, which is broadly speaking a, a school of social and political sciences, but generically we say social sciences, we consider ourselves to be amongst the best in the country, competitive internationally. We have vibrant programs in undergraduate and postgraduate taught master's degrees and a very vibrant PhD program for anyone who's interested in making inquiries. Um, but for, for tonight's purposes, um, you're probably, probably going to guess very quickly, I'm not, a, I'm not a security studies scholar and I'm also not a quantum person. But that's probably an advantage because I get to sort of ask the very generic questions that I'm hoping is on the mind of some of you. Before, we, before I introduce James. My field is policy studies, public and social policy. I'm a stranger, as I said, to the field that we're talking about tonight, but I'm no stranger to the process of asking questions as to how we might understand a particular field when we might be experts, how to define our field to non-experts. I think that's really vital, especially in something as important, but as, as probably, I should say, as little known, as little understood, as quantum. So with that, can I presume perhaps to ask a few questions and perhaps put them out as challenges to our experts. Firstly, I think we need to, as experts in an area that is, on the one hand, James has said to me, not interdisciplinary, but I'll include interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary. And I think something we should say is that we ought to be able to come to terms with what it is to be all of those three things before we get to explain to audiences that are not necessarily experts in our area. So let me put that out there as challenge number one. 
Secondly, work on this and areas like this crosses not only disciplines, but I'd like to think also, as many of you will know, crosses the divide between the sciences and the social sciences, and that makes it terrifically exciting, but also very, very complex. Thirdly, we're dealing not only with theory, but also practice, and not just with practice, but also application. Fourthly, we're talking, or at least we should be talking, about policy relevance, relevance to governments, and relevance to organisations outside of these walls. And fifth, related to that, we're talking also about social and policy impact. And impact is one of those agendas that we're very, very in touch with in universities, but I'd like to suggest, as someone who is, is engaged in policy impact type work, that we really haven't, A, we haven't theorised about it adequately for ourselves or our audiences, and secondly, we haven't really communicated that message outside of our university walls. So the collaboration that I think is represented, hopefully, in this room moves us forward in these kinds of uh, directions. So with all of that, uh, let me introduce you to Professor James Dederian and wish you all the best for this forum, and James, who's going to be our moderator. First of all, thank you, Gabby, for the wonderfully thoughtful introduction. And thank you all for coming. Um, this is the kickoff event for our annual Q Symposium, where we try to engage people from a lot of different disciplines, um, from the people who actually uh, are making decisions and executing policies, and the thinkers and critics and theorists. But it's um, part of a project that's funded by the Carnegie Corporation, Project Q. So I'm here wearing a couple different hats. The first is as the director of the Center for National Security Studies. And my job is, um, with the help of a remarkable staff, is to try to figure out what makes us safe and really what puts us in danger. But the other hat I wear today uh, for this panel is as the director of Project Q. And I'm trying to understand, with the help of the participants from the Q Symposium, past, present, um, really um, where quantum technology is going to fall on this spectrum. Is it going to make us feel safe? Are we going to benefit? Or is it going to make us feel more threatened, um, endangered? Now, um, there's one problem with this uh, attempt, and that's the fact that there um, are many powerful technologies that owe their existence to quantum mechanics. Um, lasers, MRIs, microprocessors, your mobile phones, atomic clocks, we could go on and on. But really we're talking about something that doesn't yet exist, a quantum computer. Um, it could well happen that the first quantum computer, the switch will be thrown, as a Microsoft executive might have prematurely said right here on this campus, but at the University of Sydney. So we are, um, I think, enjoined to debate this issue. Um, particularly at Sydney, because it's leading the way. Um, and it involves a lot of big questions. Um, and one of the reasons why we're holding this forum today is because six months ago, as part of our documentary, we interviewed some of the key figures of Microsoft, IBM, Google. And they, for the first time, were saying, yes, quantum supremacy in one year. That's a big claim. Um, it doesn't, it sounds grander than it perhaps is. It just means simply a quantum system that can do more than a classical system in one area or another. 
Um, um, I'm sure Michael will talk a bit more about this. But it does mean that we should be having this debate, I think, before rather than after quantum goes online. If anything, the reason why we're holding this event with experts on nuclear issues, on artificial intelligence, on drones, on, compu on computer science, and quantum physics is because we've seen a legacy of policy lagging behind technological innovation, playing catch up, sometimes with you know, deleterious, I think, um, effects and consequences. So we're gonna stage the debate. We're gonna ask for you to um, help us in this debate um, because uh, the intent of this forum, which you've seen the title, how many, I'm just curious, how many of you have seen Dr. Strangelove? How many picked up on the, oh good, so I don't have to get into that too much. Um, obviously, uh, we're playing off a long history here of very, very powerful technologies. And um, if you catch the drift of the title, um, and I think what we want to debate today is how much we should be worried and how much we should be in love with these technologies. Um, especially because there is a tendency in my field to often believe that there can be a technological fix to the most intractable political problems, particularly geopolitical problems. So I'm aware of that hubris that exists in my um, discipline as well. So we're here to try to understand this, um, how disruptive, um, how positive, but also how potentially destructive these technologies um, are going to be. Now, we're going to keep this event casual, interactive, um, Q&A um, at the end of a series of questions that I'm going to pose. Um, we have one rule. It's the rule that the president, U.S. president invoked in Dr. Strangelove. Um, there will be no fighting in the war room. So everybody's going to be civil, but we do like to see um, uh, people pushed. So. Um, that's going to be our only request. So my first um, request that goes to the panelists, I mean, instead of you know, giving an introduction to each of them and listing all their incredible accomplishments, I'm just going to ask them to give a little bit of an autobiography of who they are, what they do, and how it relates to this theme. And um, Michael and I did this last night on um, the Stan Grant show, so I think he's prepped uh, first and best. So I'm going to ask him to start. Just give us a short pressy of um, what's your business. Uh, I don't know. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Um, I, I think I'm the only quantum researcher on the panel. So I'm a, I'm, my name is Mike Biersick. I'm a professor at the University of Sydney, uh, professor of quantum technology and quantum physics. And I run a research team that is focused on actually building quantum technology. We both learn about the fundamental aspects of nature by studying quantum mechanical systems, in our case, individual atoms that we can trap and manipulate. But we also try to deploy them for technological ends. We try to build new things, including quantum computers, including next generation atomic clocks, quantum sensors, and the like. Um, I'm also the CEO and founder of a technology startup company called Q-Control. We're venture capital backed. Um, and we are run from the campus of the university, although we are independent of the university. We're trying to take some of the ideas and the knowledge that we've developed in my laboratory, which focuses exclusively on open research. This is a topic that will come up later. Um, uh, and tries to deploy it in the emerging and very exciting market of quantum technology, and in particular, quantum computing. And, and I'll, I'll just close by leading with my favorite thing to say about this field, which I hope excites you which is that quantum technology, quantum computing is one aspect of quantum technology, but quantum technology which harnesses quantum physics as a resource will be as transformational in the 21st century as harnessing electricity was in the 19th. 
So with that, I'll, I'll hand over to other panelists. There you go. We've had the first uh, gauntlet thrown down there. Uh, Hugh Gustafson, please. Uh, I'm Hugh Gustafson. Uh, I'm an anthropologist, an anthropologist of science. Uh, I mainly study physicists. Uh, my earlier work was studying the culture of nuclear weapons designers in the United <laughs> States. Um, at the moment, I'm in the middle of a project funded by the National Science Foundation to study the polygraph, the lie detector test. Um, but a couple of years ago, I published a book called Drone. So I spent some time recently thinking about drone operators and what the transition to drone warfare signifies. Um, as an anthropologist, I think what anthropologists do is they listen to people talking about what they think they're doing, and then they look carefully at the consequences and the patterns of people's behavior and try and look at the disconnections and the connections between what people, the stories people tell about what they're doing and then the actual consequences of what they're doing. And if I might, just for a couple of minutes, I wanted to say a few things about drone warfare, about my last book, um, because I think it might have some implications to help us think through the quantum revolution. Um, when drones started to be used under the Bush and Obama administrations in the Middle East, uh, there was a lot of rhetoric about how it was going to transform the nature of warfare. And so uh, what I take away from my, my book on drones, my work on drones, is first of all that drone warfare had consequences quite different from the ones that were anticipated by the people who engineered the move to drone warfare. And second, there was a lot of hype that turned out to be sort of overhype. The promises that were made about ways in which drones would transform warfare didn't bear fruit. So the move to drone warfare, there were two particular promises that were made. First of all, that it would uh, minimize US casualties. No pilots in the planes if they get shot down. And by the way, 50% of the predators crashed. They destroyed themselves. So um, not a very effective technology in that regard. So, but if you have no one in the plane, no US casualties. The other promise was that there wouldn't be many civilian casualties on the other side, because the drones could linger, they could use high-resolution cameras as they surveyed a potential target for hours and hours at a time, and that they would be very discriminate in the way they were used. And you wouldn't get this high civilian casualty kind of warfare that the US had waged in earlier kinds of interventions in Vietnam, the Middle East, and so on. Uh, so the first promise was true. 50% um, of the drones crashed, no Americans killed. The second promise did not come true. Lots of civilian casualties still. Now people dispute the proportion of civilian casualties, but it's pretty clear at this point that still lots of civilian casualties. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, the drones largely target cell phones. If at any point in the last six months to a year, the US has heard someone they want to kill speak on a cell phone, and if a drone picks up the SIM card from that cell phone, then they shoot dead whoever is holding the cell phone. Six months later, that may not be the person that was using it before. And actually, the people the US wants to kill know that the US targets cell phones, so they often give their cell phones to children and other civilians. So the US will kill the wrong people. They will have a propaganda victory and can recruit more people to fight the US. The second problem is that when drone operators are watching through the cameras in their um, pods, trying to decide, is that a terrorist or not, cultural biases still come into play. They see someone digging a hole and they have to decide, is that an IED or not? Um, they see someone praying. You know, we have transcripts of drone operators. They say, oh look, they got out of the pickup truck and they're all praying. They must be terrorists. Let's kill them. Turns out they weren't terrorists after all, right? They see large numbers of military-age males gathered together. They tend to assume the worst, but they've often killed people um, in parliamentary gatherings in Afghanistan by doing that sort of thing. 
So it turns out that the promise that was made about eliminating civilian casualties did not come true. And now we hear military researchers, engineers, artificial intelligence people making a new promise. They're saying, well, if you take humans out of the loop, if you develop autonomous smart drones, you program ethics programs into them, we won't get these mistakes anymore. Uh, and it's something we might want to talk about in our conversation. I think this is fool's gold to pursue this. The biases of the people who are making the decisions right now will be black boxed, but still in the algorithms that guide autonomous drones. We'll still have uh, civilian casualties, but they'll be blamed on technical error instead of on operator error. It'll be very hard to hold anyone accountable. Final comment I want to make, the final observation. I said that there were two reasons the US gave for moving to drone warfare. Eliminate civilian casualties, didn't happen. Eliminate US casualties, did happen more. One consequence of developing a mode of warfare where only the other side dies is that you get the development of what philosophers call a moral hazard. It becomes very tempting to use drones if you know no Americans will be coming back from the battle zone in body bags. There's a reason there's only been one congressional hearing in the US on drone warfare. It's the people in Congress don't care about a mode of warfare in which only Muslims on the other side of the world are dying and Americans aren't dying. And the American public doesn't care either. This is very bad for democracy. Drones have, have had a revolutionary impact. They've helped to create a mode of warfare that goes under the radar of democracy, where the American people have lost interest in regulating that kind of warfare. Um, so with those cautionary comments in mind, I look forward to the conversation about Q. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alison, please. So I'm Alison McFarlane. I'm a professor at George Washington University in the United States. I'm trained actually as a geologist, but I work on nuclear energy and nuclear waste technology uh, policy issues. Um, I have a little bit of practical experience. I'm the former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the regulator in the U.S., and I was in that position under President Obama. And actually, I'm in Australia for six months or so on a Fulbright Fellowship, so based in Adelaide. Um, a few words about these technologies that we're focused on in, in tonight's event. Uh, like these drones, uh, the quantum computing, quantum technologies, artificial intelligence, advanced nuclear reactors, they hold a lot of promise, and of course they hold risks, which we just heard about. And in some cases, the risks are catastrophic risks. So I'm interested in how you manage those risks, and in particular, should we and can we restrict this kind of technology? And I think James has got an excellent program here because I think it's really important to talk about these risks before we really begin to develop these technologies. If you think about some, some technologies, I think you can make a very strong argument should not be developed because the risks are too high. Uh, I think it's good to proceed with precaution. Um, an example, uh, when Don Kennedy was the uh, editor or the head of, of Science magazine, he actually refused to publish an article on uh, bird flu and the development of bird flu because he did not want that knowledge out there that could be used in, in a bad way. 
So can we restrict these issues? In part, it depends on what sector where these, these technologies are being developed. If they're being developed in the military sector, done <coughs> secretly, it's very difficult to restrict them unless you do it in a democratic way. Um, if they're being developed in the commercial sector, it's, it's more straightforward to, to restrict them. And to do that, you have to have some kind of regulator, regulatory scheme, and you're best off with an independent regulator, somebody who is free from industry and political influence. And the regulator itself has to be well-resourced, both with personnel and with finances. They have to have the support of the government so that they can shut down and enforce their regulations, shut down these technologies if they think the risk is too high. Um, so I think to understand the risks of some of these technologies that we're talking about, especially at the Q, it becomes very difficult. But to, because to understand the risks, you have to understand both the consequences and the probabilities that these accidents or events would happen, and that's very difficult to know. So we're in a, in a difficult place right now, and I'm glad we're getting together and, and having a discussion about this. Thank you very much. Toby, please. So uh, I'm a scientific professor of artificial intelligence at the USW, and when I was a young boy, I read too much science fiction, <laughs> like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and if you see the vision they give of the future, it's full of robots, intelligent machines, and there's a very good reason, because that is 100% part of our future. And every time you open the newspaper, you see that future seems to be arriving very rapidly. And quantum computing will certainly help. I will certainly also talk about how quantum computing, there are some things even quantum computing won't help with. It's not going to be, a, the moment we switch on a quantum computer is not going to be the moment necessarily. We have machines that can think. You have to remember that we're trying to do what the human brain does. And the human brain is by far the most complex system that we know of in the universe. Nothing approaches the billions of neurons. Trillions of connections. And there may be something, and this is why AI is really interesting, all these interesting fundamental science, scientific questions, there may be something fundamentally different about our biology that we can't just re reproduce in silicon. And there are those, like Sir Roger Penrose, who have said that maybe that's something quantum, that's something that we won't get in silicon, and that we will have to have something quantum to be able to reproduce the human brain. But there's something else that's very special about the human brain. When you woke up this morning, you were conscious. There's something special about the higher, the more intelligence that, that animals have and the more conscious they are. And that's something that is integral to our existence and something that we all know, know almost nothing about. It's one mm -hmm. of the biggest open scientific questions. And again, AI may help inform that, that, that argument about what is consciousness. Well, we, we, we don't build machines that have anything approaching consciousness today. We have no idea how to do that, which is especially troubling when we're going to give autonomy to machines, we're going to give them the right to make decisions that impact upon our lives, and they're not conscious about those decisions, and whether they will ever be conscious about those sorts of decisions. And so I'm very troubled about what we're going to be doing, and we're already seeing this discussion around things like autonomous cars, but it, there the, the issues are very thorny, but we're not building machines that are trying to kill people. In fact, we're building machines that are trying to save people's lives. But it's really troubling, it's really troubling to hear what Hugh was saying about drones when we're thinking about building autonomous weapons. And it's not me that's just worried about it, it's thousands of my colleagues who have signed 
open letters to the United Nations. I've gone and spoken to the United Nations about this topic. And I have so many more concerns, along with the technical concerns about, about the accuracy of the machines and their ability to, to perform the task that we can, and the moral hazards that it takes us to. Because at the end of the day, we will be giving machines the right to decide who lives and who dies. And that's a very strong moral line to cross. And I'm sad to say, Australia is against this, or at least our government is against this. I've spoken to the United Nations, and unlike other matters of disarmament where Australia has often made the way, we are dragging our heels. We are the United States lapdog. Compared to our cousins in the ta across the Tasman, compared to, to many other nations that have called for a preemptive ban. This is a technology, one that will transform warfare, and transform warfare in terrible ways. These will be weapons that, that have a speed that will change the nature of war, that you won't be able to defend yourself. They'll, they'll change the scale of war, they'll industrialize warfare. The, you're with one programmer, you can do what used to take a thousand soldiers. This will be a step change, like nuclear bombs were a step change in which the speed and efficiency with which we could kill the other side. And there are a moral slope that I hope we choose not to go down, like we occasionally do with biological, chemical, and other weapons. We occasionally make a decision. This technology has immense benefits. Let's use it for the good, and let's not use it for the bad. Thank you. Okay, we're going to um, get responses. Um, but first, I, I've read your works. Um, I did a little bit of homework, and um, I was overwhelmed. And so I decided to go to what I think to be um, the master source on this topic. And of course, it's the quantum spy which is by David Ignatius, who's actually a quite respected um, correspondent for the Washington Post, foreign correspondent. And um, there you go. Very connected individual. Um, and uh, rather than like, you know, tell you the whole plot, but as you might imagine, like all of these new technolo technological breakthroughs, everybody's worried about the race, the competition. Now, at one you know, argument could be, well, without competition, where's progress? Where's innovation? Um, without freedom, if we over-regulate, um, how can you possibly um, allow the, the creativity to take full bloom? Um, I want to get into that. But first, I'm going to just read the dust jacket here, because I'm going to ask Michael first to respond to this, and then anybody else who wants to, to this um, very breathless prose, but actually, I think gets to the truth of a couple of the matters. A hyperfast quantum computer is the digital equivalent of a nuclear bomb. You might want to take that one. <laughs> Whoever possesses one will be able to shred any encryption and break any code in existence, true or not. The winner of the race to build the world's first quantum machine will attain global dominance for generations to come. Q, is that you, baby? The question is, who will cross the finish line first, the US or China? I'm willing to take that one, but um, anybody want to take the first question? How about that question about a hyperfast quantum computer is the digital equivalent of a nuclear bomb? I think um, <clears throat> I'm happy to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think this discussion so far has really lacked context. Um, so I, I, uh, I am a researcher. I run a research team and a company but I also worked in a military agency in the United States focused on the development of defense technologies. It's an agency called DARPA. Um, 
I've visited the Predator Drone Lab. I have watched U-2s striking targets in Iraq and Afghanistan when I was working in that agency. Uh, that's not at all a secret, right? Um, research and development in quantum computing is nothing like drone warfare. This is a research program that is a decadal research program. And absolutely, we should think early, and this is a great opportunity, to talk about ethical questions associated with technical developments. Um, I do not want this audience to come away thinking that the drones that, that uh, were posited before are somehow powered by experimental quantum computers or something. This is, this is not reality, right? And so I think, I think um, there's a lot of breathlessness, as was, as was articulated a moment ago. There's also a love of adversarial storylines, which I just don't think is reflective of reality either. Um, indeed, the United States, to some degree, has an adversarial relationship with China, in, in addition with Russia right now. What's really happening is that there is a global collaboration in research to try and understand whether we can build quantum computers, among other quantum technologies. That research is largely funded by the United States. I'm in Australia, I get money from the United States. Some of the people you saw from the University of New South Wales in the video, also funded by the United States. This is very much a global enterprise. Competition should not be associated with an adversarial posture, right? We compete because we're interested in maybe getting there first and getting some you know, minuscule accolades in academia and things like that. But the fact is, people who are scientists in this field are trying to get at the truth, and people who are technologists are interested in doing something new, right? And as Charlie Marcus said in, in one of those videos, anything that's useful can be weaponized. It's good to think about it. It's not the same as hand-wringing at all times that we're about to have quantum computer-powered drones, right? It's, I think just understanding where we are, what the field really is about, is important to inform this discussion. I, I want to respectfully disagree. I mean, maybe it's all do, rosy. Do you know, do you know of any quantum computer-powered drones? No, 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 no. Let, let me disagree first. Maybe it's all rosy in the world of quantum, but it's very clear in the world of AI that China is betting for military and economic dominance by winning the AI race. And it's very clear that the technologies are being prototyped by militaries around the world. And the UK's Ministry of Defense said they, they could make a fully autonomous drone today. And I 100% believe I could give it as a grad student project. It wouldn't be very effective. Half the time it would kill the wrong person. But that doesn't really matter when you're not, you're not, you're not risking your own side. Mm -hmm. Sure, but this is the Q Symposium about quantum computing. Yeah, so I just want to... Let's make a, one, distinction, yeah, one distinction. This panel was supposed to be looking, taking the long view of many different technologies, not just quantum. And I cherish, actually, the dissent that's offered by physicists and others because... The only way we're going to progress on this is having reality checks about the physics, but also having reality checks about the politics. And the reason why we have an anthropologist and uh, someone who's been in the policy world and also someone in computer science, and myself in geopolitics, is we don't usually have this conversation. So we want to be able to, you know, respectively recognize that none of us have a monopoly on the truth on this question. So with that little plea, I'm now going to turn it over for some more bomb throwing, <laughs> bomb throwing from Hugh Gusterson. No, I'm going to ratchet things down. I, just in case anyone thought I was saying anything about quantum-powered drones, I want to clarify that I was trying to use drones as something to think with about the implications of new technologies when they get weaponized. 
and uh, was not claiming that drones themselves are quantum powered, but I'm interested in how hard it can be to foresee the consequences of introducing new technologies. So, and you know, Alison was talking about wrestling with this ahead of time, trying to foresee the consequences. Um, I guess the point I would like to make is that we have a pretty mediocre record in foreseeing what the consequences of new technologies will be. I think of JFK making a prediction that within 10 or 15 years, there would be over 20 nuclear armed countries. Uh, and he had the best intelligence in the world at his disposal when he made that prediction, and he was wrong. Uh, many of the scientists from the Manhattan Project who helped create nuclear weapons then believed that within their lifetimes, they would be used again, and they were wrong. Many of the weapons scientists I interviewed believe it's something close to a law of human nature, human history, that the weapons they design will never ever be used, that humans are too rational to use them. I'm very skeptical about that claim. Fortunately, they haven't been proven wrong yet. I think about things like nuclear energy, the uh, field that Alison is more of an expert in. When nuclear energy was introduced, we were told electricity would be too cheap to meter. I don't think that's uh, been proven to be the case. Um, if you ask people to predict where there might be a nuclear meltdown, Fukushima, Japan, would not have been high on their list. Fukushima was the accident that was supposed to be impossible. Um, I've had nuclear experts tell me if there was gonna be a nuclear meltdown, it would be somewhere in the third world, in India, or somewhere like that where people were too um, underdeveloped to know how to manage a sophisticated technology. All the meltdowns have been in the Western world. Windscale in the UK, Three Mile Island in the US, Chernobyl, and now Fukushima, if you count Japan as the Western world, the industrialized world. So I just want to make the point that we have a pretty poor track record when we make confident statements about how technology is going to work out. Could I just uh, intervene very quickly? My favorite in bad predictions came from Thomas Watson, um, you know, one of the fathers of computing, who said, um, the most we'll ever need of the number of computers are five the time when computers filled whole rooms. But the reason he gave that later why there'd never be a personal computer is because he said, men don't type. <laughs> so there is a cultural gendered bias in how we interpret these things. Th Th Thomas Watson was sort of right. We need five each. Right. <laughs> but now I'm going like, to wear the other hat and ask other people to respond. The fact is, a quantum computer has to be super-cooled. Um, it has to have kind of shielding that the new nanoscience building has, um, or what the D-Wave is encased in. Um, we're talking about big capital expenditure in research and in, in you know, eventual production. So it is going to be a big state, big corporation, or do you think some state might leapfrog over in the way that other technologies, like it's the lesser developed sometimes states that don't go through the same pathways? Or they just shoot down a drone and reproduce it like Iran did with a U.S. drone. Yes. So, so I'm, I'm wondering about that for the people who are on the panel. If, if we're maybe keeping, we're, we're focused too much on China or the United States. Are there others or other corporations or other, some of the startups in the room might want to talk about this later on, but are we looking in the wrong place here? Do you have any opinions on that, anybody? Go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead. You're the expert on this particular question, so please. So I... I <coughs> There are places you might not expect, if, if, if by you I mean you're a security analyst, um, that are real leaders in this field. Austria, of, of all places when it comes to thinking about high technology, Austria is an outstanding leader in this field. And so you could certainly imagine that um, a security analyst can get caught off guard 
by this reality that there are absolute top tier research teams in places like that uh, that can really do extraordinary things and may win this, this imaginary race about uh, building quantum computers. Um, I think you know, what, one thing I did learn when I, was, when I was at DOD and we were funding quantum research, among other things, was that there are some things you can really dramatically accelerate by throwing cash at the problem, and there are some things you really can't. So uh, if a state just says to their researchers, here's you know, $50 billion to go build a quantum computer, that's not exactly uh, a, a necessary or a sufficient condition to, to realize that kind of technology. Um, so the likelihood, I would say, overall, of a real rogue surprise that, that the technical members of the community, people like me or some of my colleagues, say, man, we didn't even know there were any people studying this at all, and all of a sudden they have a functional quantum computer. I think that's reasonably low likelihood. Um, I think you certainly could see that there are uh, things in the black in various places, in the black meaning uh, classified, in various places uh, which are not spoken about publicly, uh, but which you know have surprising levels of capability. I think those kinds of things are quite possible. China is a top tier candidate for that. Okay. Now we've had on the table here two different interpretations of when we talk about what could go wrong. One is the wrong people can get hold of certain technologies and have malevolent uh, intentions with it. The other is the accident. And it seems like every new technology has built into it an accident waiting to happen. You know, the Challenger spacecraft, or we go back for the Titanic, you know, it was never gonna sink, or Hugh's given some examples. Um, I'm just wondering, in your own fields, where do you see, um, I mean, I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball, but based on your, your backgrounds, where do you see this falling? Is it going to be out of malicious use or accidental? And what might it look like um, in terms of, um, impact. Or both. Or An both, accident please. is interpreted as malicious use. Very interesting. Can you tell us more about that? You know, accidents happen. I work in the nuclear weapons realm, so if some nuclear weapon went off somewhere accidentally, it might be interpreted as malign, and then you end up with a nuclear war. That's in part why these weapons pose such high risks. Toby, artificial intelligence, what do you think on this question? Well, I mean, we've already seen people being killed by AI because we actually mm. tend to trust technology. Uh, it behaves well in one situation. We don't realize that, uh, that it's going to break in strange ways. I mean, we talk about AI, and we tend to focus on the I, the intelligence. We don't focus on the A. And it may be a very different type of intelligence to ours. And we do already know ex many examples yeah. of how when it breaks, it breaks in ways that are very unhuman and to, to our surprise. And so we're going to trust the technology too much and it will break and it will hurt us at various points. Joshua Brown, the first guy killed by his Tesla when it was driving autonomously, mm -hmm. is the first uh, mm -hmm. recorded victim, patient zero. There's so many lives to be saved by... Yeah, equally. Many lives can be saved. Absolutely fantastic. We're going to look back... In 20 years' time, we're going to say, the roads were like the Wild West. How did we put up with the carnage on our roads? Um, so there are fantastic benefits. But it's a question of how, we, how do we get to that point? Mm -hmm. How do we benefit? How do we trade off the benefits against the risks? Mm -hmm. One of the lessons I take from the nuclear weapons field, when the US developed the first nuclear weapon in 1945, US intelligence predicted that it would be possibly decades before the Russians could follow. 
They were astonished that within four years, 1949, the Soviets did their first nuclear test. Yeah, espionage helped. And it's very hard to prevent espionage, right? Uh, the Chinese uh, had people in the US and they helped too. Iran has drones, one of which Israel shut down last week because they managed to hack into an American drone, bring it down to land intact in Iran so they could reverse engineer it. So the lesson I take is that for the first mover, these technologies are incredibly difficult to develop. So the work that Mike and his colleagues are doing is incredibly difficult. And there's often an overconfidence among governments that they can keep that secret if they decide to try and keep it secret. And even if they're not trying to keep it secret, the key knowledge is that something can be done and roughly which of five or six different strategies turned out to be the most fruitful. So once the cat is out of the bag, other countries will follow. So the US assumed it had a weapon that would guarantee it global hegemony for decades. And they just got four years. And ever since then, they've had mutual assured destruction and terror. Um, so I assume that whoever gets here first, it won't be so long before someone else gets there. So we should be having a conversation about a global society with these kinds of technologies and how we want to plan for that world. And if I could just pick up on your last question, I note that last week um, a space rocket was launched and it wasn't launched by a government. It was launched by Elon Musk, who is also building his own subway between LA and Santa Barbara. And <laughs> so, you know, we're at the point where these oligarchs in the US and maybe elsewhere have the resources the governments used to have. So it may not just be governments that have these technologies at their disposal. Well, um, we're going to open it up in a minute, but I just want to share one story and get some impressions because it touches on many of these themes. Uh, Michael might be surprised, but uh, in one of the hats that I wore when I was in the States was I um, participated in what's called Global Trends 2015. This is what the CIA does every five years to try to predict the future. What's the next threat? And 15 years is good because you can make an outlandish prediction, and usually you're dead by before it comes true. <laughs> or, uh, you know. um, but I was part of the kind of the wacko, out of the box uh, group that assembled in Washington, it included sci fi writers, Bruce Sterling, and um, a couple others. And I was asked to put together the final scenario, and I, I presented it. And this was in the year 2000. And the scenario I presented is that an electrical grid goes down in the United States, and um, First of all, they can't tell if it's an accident or intentional. Was it hacked? Was it a foreign power? What happened? But given that there were very high um, tensions in the Middle East, the president at the time decided it was intentional, launches an attack, things escalate, get out of control, and we have a nice little war in the Middle East. The report never made it into the final Global Trends 2015. And to this day, I think it's because I said the president was Warren Beatty. Now, that's wishful thinking on my part, probably. Instead, Donald Trump, you know, 2016. Um, so two little lessons I want to um, maybe tease out from this and maybe get reaction before we open it up. How good are we at predicting? I mean, Niels Bohr, the father of quantum, famously said, you know, predict predictions are very, very hard, particularly about the future. You know, he was being facetious, but... But it's true about quantum. It's very difficult. And so that's sobering. Um, but the other lesson as well is one that I find nobody in that room, and this is some of the smartest people I've ever been with. It was about 100, and we all got back together after the breakout groups. Nobody predicted that 18 guys 
who had been training with computer simulations and using the internet to get tickets and um, had um, gotten some box cutters and used civilian planes would take down the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, attack it, and would end up causing a trillion dollars worth of damage after a $500,000 investment. Nobody in that room predicted it. So I throw that out as sort of a sobering thing. We're making an effort here, but I always tend to err on the side of, you know, uh, you know worst case because of that, the, the unknown unknowns. This is Donald Rumsfeld's greatest contribution to this <laughs> debate, the unknown unknown. So we're going to throw it open, and I'm going to ask you to take a mic because this is being um, taped, and to keep the questions short so we can get as many um, people in the conversation as possible, identify yourself, and... Um, will allow, uh, hopefully, the nature of the question to determine who it gets directed at. While the mic is moving, can I ask you, has the CIA done a study of its predictions to see how, how many came true? I'm sure some, the problem is, I'm actually still, and you know, I'm not allowed to identify who is, oh my god, I just broke the rule. <laughs> um, do we have one of those little devices in Men in Black, we can just flash it and everybody <laughs> forgets? Um, yeah, that's the thing about these, you know, it's kind of like non-disclosure acts on us. You're not supposed to, um, you're not supposed to mention the names, actually. And Bruce doesn't care if I mention his name. <laughs> now you know. Now you know. We're doing full disclosure here. So, anyways, I saw some hands. A um, um, couple shot up there. We'll go there and then there. Please, sir, if you could identify yourself. And well, I'm not sure how you want me to identify myself, but I mean, my, my name's Joe. Um, you've talked about artificial intelligence and how, particularly with militarised AI, you might want to put some limitations on that. My question, in short, is where do you draw the line? And the second part is how do you enforce that? Uh, and just in a bit more detail, when I think about where to draw the line, like I think about the Terminator movie series, and we probably don't want to see that happen, but maybe we are starting to build weapons like that, and in regards to how do you enforce it, well, I don't know how they did chemical and other things, but I, I know there's a nuclear non-proliferation treaty and you, you hope that countries abide by that, but if, if, if some of this technology is so powerful, there's potentially going to be rogue nations that would continue to develop it, so how do you enforce that? So, a great, great question. Um, I've had the last couple of years of rapid training in international diplomacy and um, arms disarmament. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a challenge to, to enforce like any type of arms disarmament. And it begins by becoming, by it being morally unacceptable to use that weapon. Just like we decided it was morally unacceptable to use chemical weapons, biological weapons. And chemical weapons is a good analogy because the chemical weapons, you don't need a lot of knowledge, it doesn't need a lot of money. You need high school chemistry and the stuff you can go and buy in your hardware store in the, in the swimming pool section. Right? But, that, but nevertheless, the chemical weapon ban has been remarkably effective. Sure, enough, they do occasionally get used in Syria and elsewhere. But the important thing is, and this is the really critical thing, is that because there's a UN ban, arms companies do not sell them. They do not turn up in black markets. They are not in the hands of terrorists who tend to be, fortunately, technically rather illiterate. And therefore, they get used relatively less than they would, I suspect, than if we didn't have such bans. And that's what we could hope for, for, you know, for example, for our ban on autonomous weapons, is that, first of all, we decided it was morally unacceptable. My fear, my fear is that we, most weapons that have got banned 
we had to see the horror of those wars. We had to see the, the use of chemical weapons in the First World War before we realized that it was morally unacceptable to use that type of weapon. We've got plenty of weapons, plenty of ways of killing people, plenty of deterrents. We don't need another nastier weapon to add to the list. I, I guess I would add that uh, certainly arms control is very important. Uh, I'm not a political scientist, but I know political scientists have spent a lot of time dealing with this question and thinking of norms or, or other aspects. But I think it's important also to think about military use and usefulness. And, you know, the military in the U.S. often doesn't think of nuclear weapons as terribly militarily useful. They don't really help them fight a war. Neither are biological weapons militarily useful because you could, they could blow back on you. And I think, in part, that's an, that's an issue with chemical weapons, although Assad seems to be using them in Syria, but they seem to be using them against civilian populations. Um, but, you know, these, you end up doing diplomacy. And if these weapons are held by states, then you end up having states have to talk to each other. If it's held by what they call non-state actors, then it gets more complicated because it's hard to know how to deter them and they change and their modus operandi changes over time, so. It's, it's my belief about weapons that the more you hype them and talk about the incredible advantage they'll give, the more attractive you make them. You may be trying to sow fear to build an arms control movement, but to the people who open their checkbooks and pay for them, you've made them attractive. So if the military believes there's a race they could win and there's an advantage in winning the race, they will try and acquire those weapons. So you want to convince them, first of all, that the weapons won't be particularly useful. Biological weapons, you use them, you kill the enemy, they blow back on you and they kill you. Or you want to convince them that the race can't be won and in the long term they're just going to make themselves more vulnerable. Or that the weapons just won't work the way they're advertised. And so in my writing on drones, I've tried to sort of puncture the aura around drones and to create a line of argument that actually they're a waste of money, that they're not doing what they were, were promised to do. With reference to drones, there are two very specific um, measures that I would like to see. The International Committee on Robot Arms Control, ICRAC, um, has a draft treaty uh, where no country, every country agrees that would not develop autonomous weapons. Unfortunately, the US and Australia are not happy about that language and uh, not enthusiastic about signing it. It would be wonderful if we had something like the landmine ban or the cluster munitions ban, where lots of countries signed that and put pressure on other countries to sign it. The second thing I would like to see, it's very, very easy to archive all the communication that precedes a drone strike. Often the operators are actually typing communications to each other. I would like an international rule that all of the communication preceding a drone strike has to be archived and handed over to an international body in The Hague or Geneva or somewhere like that. If there's any question of a war crime having been committed, that archive footage can be gone through and someone can be held responsible for a war crime. And just a quick um, little, um, I don't, you know, we're talking about this in the terms of it being in the future, but there are autonomous weapons right now on the border of the DMZ in one of the hottest places in the world right now in, you know, North Korea, South Korea. And on Royal Australian naval ships and on U.S. naval ships. The, uh, right, but this one's a bit worrying. The same company that makes our refrigerators and our televisions has created a grenade launcher and a fully automatic 
um, uh, heavy caliber machine gun that has three modes. One is human control. Uh, one is semi, uh, depending on pattern recognition. And the third is, if there's a full-on invasion and it's time to get out of dodge, um, the machine, meaning the brain of this machine, determines the targets. Um, so that's, it exists now. So we're not talking about something in sci-fi at this point. Okay, uh, other questions? Um, there, and then uh, I saw another hand. Yeah, we'll do it right up in the corner there. Baseball hat. I'm sorry, not a baseball hat, a wicked hat. Sorry, what do you call it? A cricket hat. What do you call it? Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a member of the general public. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, you talk a lot about drones as, as weapons. I, I was wondering, with the proliferation of uh, recreational um, drones and the potentials for surveillance, so I, my particular place, I live, near a, I live near a park where there's people flying drones left, right and centre. I'm wondering, well, from your opinion, do you think we'll ever get to a stage where recreational craft can be used by the state in order to, to survey or be a weapon against the general population? Let's so give Michael a shot at this one first. <clears throat> so so I, wanted, I wanted to uh, maybe shift your attention and your worry to a different thing, which it, but in the, same, in the same spirit. If you, if, based on the uh, fact that you asked that question, if you have some concern over the state deploying these drones to be uh, used for surveillance purposes. You should be more concerned that the Premier of New South Wales said the other day that she wanted to deploy speed cameras to monitor people in real time on the road, right? I think, I think one thing we often lose sight of, and, and you know, this is not uh, any criticism of your question, your question is very well uh, posed in this context, is um, we think about the things that are the sexiest and the easiest to identify, and we miss all the, the creeping versions of the same thing. Right? And in this case, I think the existing apparatus of the state is much more concerning and much more nefarious than the likelihood that they're, you know, I mean, the state government can barely figure out anything. And the fact that <laughs> they're going to figure out, you know, effectively local drone warfare, I think, is, is low-level likelihood. But I, I think, I think the, the, that the, the concern over state surveillance is extremely valid, and it will take many forms, and it very well may take the form that you articulated. But I want to put one good word in for that drone that saved those two, two people who were taken out by the riptide. You know, a drone dropped a life boy. You know, this, yeah. Maybe you all know it because that's part of the intention, that we're supposed to love our drones. Stop worrying and love our drones. But to, to pick up Michael's point, also, if, if you've just gone out and bought yourself Alexa, you should think carefully whether you really want to transmit your data mm -hmm. back to a technology company who then owns it. Or if you buy yourself a Fitbit, your heartbeat is owned by the company, not you. <laughs> and people know where you are. <laughs> to give your privacy away. So in terms of state surveillance, the US has already used, uses drones to survey the US-Mexican border. They've used them to monitor protests in US cities and so on. And so you can imagine a process of slippage where they wouldn't just monitor. Um, they might actually attack a fleeing criminal on uh, a freeway or something like that. But I'm actually not so concerned about the state and hobbyist drones. I'm concerned about rogue actors. So I encourage you to Google drone and chainsaw. And <laughs> the, video, the video will ruin your day. 
these guys in Scandinavia attached a chainsaw to a drone, and they built a series of snowmen, and they've got beautiful classical music playing as the chainsaw beheads all the snowmen. And I can imagine someone sending that into a sports arena or a shopping mall, someone who doesn't wish you all well. That was a 1980s movie, wasn't it? <laughs> Phantasm. Uh, I saw, uh, Peter, yeah, please, right here. And then we'll go back up again. Right here in the middle. I'm uh, Peter Bruce. I'm a professor of science and technology from QUT. Um, my question is in relation to AI. And um, a lot of this intelligence uh, or so-called intelligence is, is built in, you know, learned models, which are usually stochastic models which have parameters fitted or some deep learning model. And uh, uh, in particular, Toby, I was interested in your comment, you know, we, we can't even think about AI being conscious. But the question is, can some of the problems and some of the issues be solved by making them more scrutable? Because at the moment, you know, they do their thing in this model, these quite complicated stochastic models, but we don't really have an understanding about how these, transition, how these decisions came about. And if they were made more scrutable, if we could uh, um, query that, maybe then we would have more uh, confidence uh, in such technologies uh, even if it is, it's only after the fact? It's a, it's a fantastic question. We don't know how to make, make models that could be more scrutable today. Yeah. It's not even clear if we ever will, because, well, the only example we have is our own brains, and your brain is inscrutable to me. <laughs> so it's not clear that we will. Um, and it may be that we actually, you know, turn that around. So, so if you look at the autonomous cars being trialled in Singapore, if you get a taxi in Singapore, there's autonomous... They're the only cars in which the top layer is programmed by hand. So there are explicit rules, logical rules, that say, you know, don't go through a red light, don't overtake. Because that's the only way it can be really examined. And, and if it does something wrong, then you can say, wasn't there a rule for that? And if there isn't, you add another rule. And so there, I mean, the bottom level is still learning and, and perception and so on. But the top layer is written down by hand. It's more slow and more painful just so that we can have that ability to inspect it and then, and, and then you know, have some guarantee about its behavior. Maybe we're going to demand that systems are of that form and that will be more challenging to build than systems that learn. Yeah, I saw your hand there, up there in the blue shirt, and then we'll come back down. Thank you. Uh, Patrick, also general public. Um, question for Michael. We've heard a lot about um, the negative impacts of the technology we're talking about tonight. In quantum, um, what do you see as the top three benefits it's going to give humankind? Well, that's, that's so uplifting and it's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, I kind of... I, Did you I, plant him? <laughs> I, I agree with the, the sentiment that, that underlies that question that we are, look, this is a security panel, it's talking about security issues, and so people wring hands a lot. Um, I, think, I think the best way, somebody's not, a, not liking that. Um, I think the, you know, one way to answer the question is, is a really kind of vague answer, and then I'll give you specific answers, I promise. Um, the vague answer is, what were the benefits that people assumed would be in place from the development of the first digital electronic computer that was released in 1947 called the ENIAC? Um, at the time, there was not even three, there was one, and it was calculating artillery shell trajectories. Right? So the, the best that people could do at the time with this brand new technology was envision that 
They certainly did not envision Fitbits and mobile phones and all the other things that use electronic computers. So, so one way to answer the question that is a little vague is to say it's really exciting to ask what could be. And the potential that comes with harnessing this new resource for computing is extremely exciting. It's as exciting because things are so different as saying, well, all of a sudden you're going to have the first actual computer as opposed to an abacus if you want to do mathematical calculations. It's that different from the way we perform computations right now when we talk about quantum computing. Specifically, the kinds of things that I think will be beneficial will be new developments in things that sound mundane but are actually really extremely important. Chemistry and material science, understanding how chemical reactions occur. Believe it or not, in a lot of cases we don't really understand because what's underlying the chemical reaction is a quantum mechanical interaction between electrons and say two molecules that are undergoing a reaction. It's really hard to build a computer model of that. Some of my colleagues specialize in approximations to try it, but there are certain things you just can't approximate, that it's just really hard. If we solve problems that give us new classes of materials that help us in energy distribution and generation and things like that, uh, those are profoundly beneficial to society. Um, there, are, there are other applications, you know, quantum machine learning is one thing that gets mooted a lot. People are very excited about, but I wouldn't say we have a very good understanding of uh, whether it will provide a benefit at all, um, whether it's you know, real in a way. I and mean, people are, are positing it, but we don't really have quantum computers that are big enough to do anything useful yet. Um, you asked for three. Uh, can I count chem chemistry and material science as two? Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, th there are all sorts of, of practical benefits that come from new advances in computing power. Effectively, every benefit in health, in health science, in the latter half of the 20th century, Think MRI, think CAT scans, you know, think PET scans for cancer. All of them come because we have better computers, right? So I think, uh, I think the benefits can be very broad, but there are some very specific things that we do have in mind already. Awesome question. Thank you. Yeah, and I would just add to that. Uh, just today it was published an article of the um, Stephanie Velander, who we had, you had at the Nanoscience Lab with the prototypes, very, very, very preliminary for a quantum internet that can't be decrypted. Um, it's not really true, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I went to her talk. She you know, persuaded it's, me. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. You got it wrong. You got oh, it wrong. Okay, then I stand corrected um, after this present, uh, presentation. Stephanie is never wrong. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But come to our site, Project Q um, Sydney, where we have some of these interviews, and you can judge for yourself. Uh, next one down here. Thank you very much. Um, I'm afraid that I'm probably going to add to some of the gloom uh, rather than the exhilaration. I think we're actually dealing in some ways with, if you like, technophilic uh, approaches and technophobic approaches to new technologies and the challenges that they might present to us, including the risks that are attached to new technologies and the ways in which sometimes we acquire a great dependency in relation to those, thinking that they will solve problems. Uh, the question that I'd like to do raise is in relation to a technology that we know has had uh, very dire consequences. And I refer to the uh, latest report in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which, among other things, says that we're now two minutes to midnight. Now, this is at a, at a level that's the same as during the heights of the Cold War. Now, of course, we were promised during the 50s that we're going to have 
Atoms for Peace. Well, we know that it's been much more problematic. We've had, uh, we've had uh, a series of nuclear accidents, including, among other things, Fukushima, and some of the nuclear uh, products that were in that reactor work came from Australia. They're interconnections. In terms of our capacity to predict, our capacity to have foresight, our capacity for what Alison talks about in terms of having a sense of what technologies are likely to be dangerous, uh, the need perhaps for regulation, uh, those sorts of questions, and the questions also in a political context around the ways in which particular players, including Australia, the United States, uh, re react to these challenges. And I think it's been mentioned on the panel already that Australia has been adverse to any kind of uh, legislative uh, restrictions on killer drones. Uh, Australia also is resistant, among other things, to uh, signing and ratifying the Nuclear Bans Treaty, which 123 other nations actually uh, passed in the UN recently. I mean, there are quite significant challenges in terms of uh, foresight, in terms of moral imagination, and in terms of what sort of regulatory uh, framework we can put in place to ensure the benefits of new technology are, are there, at the same time ensuring that the rights of future generations are protected. I'd like the, the panel to comment on. Well, I, I think you pretty much covered it. <laughs> I think you covered it. Before we get too depressed, let's remember Australia was the birthplace for the UN treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons. That's right. I Let's, and before we get too yeah, terribly depressed, right. we have, we, we face very troubled times, I agree. Climate change, refugee problem, all these global challenges that face the planet. But we live better quality lives because we embrace technology. And our life, life expectancy around the world has increased great, greatly. Billions of people have been lifted out of poverty by technology. Because we, and it's our only hope, if we only have one hand of cards to play, we just have to make sure we play that hand of cards well. If our grandchildren are going to live better quality lives than us, we have to embrace technology, but with that we're being aware of the risks, aware of the challenges. The future's not fixed, we get to make the choices. You, you know, just to put a wet blanket on your statement, <laughs> we may end the planet as we know it we because of technology. Yeah. Climate change, yep. for instance. Yep. Nuclear weapons, yep. for instance. It's both really promise and peril. Yep. And we, but we really, so therefore, we really have to be thoughtful. I agree, 100%. About how we do this, and we have to have discussions. I'm curious, Michael, if the people in quantum computing, if the scientists doing this work ever talk about some of the downsides because you know on the biological side of things there's actually a long history of biologists thinking about the downside of things starting with recombinant DNA um, issues in the 1970s and then more recently with bioengineering. Bioengineering is also nightmarish something that the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and the Doomsday Clock. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these potential for people in their garages with, you know, materials that are easily available to build superbugs that could wipe us all out is really horrifying. But 
there are discussions amongst that scientific community and an acknowledgement of some of the ethical issues. And I wonder if you guys have done that yet. Um, well, I guess there are two ways to answer it. One is I'm here, am I not? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and this is and this is not my and this is not my first time at this symposium either. Um, uh, I write in policy journals, right? I write with the Center for New American yes. Security. And, and sorry, um, more specifically, there's just such a chasm between the kinds of things you're talking about regulating and the field of quantum technology, right? It's very easy to say, um, you know. Uh, uh, Gattaca-style genetic discrimination is bad and we should regulate against that even though we don't know how to do it yet, right? Because the idea is concrete, right? Or it's easy to say we should regulate autonomous drones even though we can't make autonomous drones or perhaps we can't make autonomous drones capable of doing sufficient levels of targeting to deploy them in warfare today. We have the concept clearly in mind and we say, we get together and we say that's, that's something we should regulate, right? Quantum technology is a giant research project, right? This is, we don't have quantum computers today that solve useful problems. It will be a long time before we have quantum computers that solve useful problems with the kinds of ethical ramifications that you have. And so, yes, I mean, I like to think that the community in which I work is full of smart and thoughtful people, and we have interesting conversations, usually over too much wine. And um, we do get into these kinds of things. It, prompts me to engage, and many of my colleagues as well. It's just very hard to talk about what we should regulate when we don't even know what the technology will be right. or how it might be applied. No, I, I understand that, I, but I'm curious, and I'm really glad you're here and, and putting some, no, put, put, giving us some context, absolutely, it's absolutely essential. But it seems what also might be important in the future is for you and your colleagues just to talk to each other, not over wine, but at conferences. <laughs> I don't know if we can agree to that one. That's, maybe that's what you Wine business. afterwards. Is this your first visit to Australia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I saw some hands over there. Um, did you have your hand up or just come, yeah, over there somewhere? Thank you. Why don't we just do uh, two more questions, okay? Oh, cool. Okay, the first part is a response to the previous question as to um, if the machine learning, the um, AI can be more screwable. The answer is no, because deep learning is based on what they say, uh, like a mimic of our neuro neurological network. But the truth is we don't really know about neurons yet. It's not that clear that we know everything that is going on in our brain. And, and I think for a lot of commercial companies, they made it very, um, they, 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 it's intentional for them to make it not cl as clear as, you know, the common people can know. So they can, as um, the, the professor said, they can, it's not accountable, you know. Um, that's my first response. Um, I think GDPR did a good start. So um, Australia can start to look at Europe um, in that regard. So the Australians um, will be protected in terms of privacy and data. This is very important. And second, um, I have, have a question for, sorry? We have to wrap it up soon. We have oh, yeah. three I have other a question for Michael. I think it's not fair that you're taking a lot of heat today. But as to a basic uh, question, you say you used to work for Drapa. Um, is it like, is it true? Uh, isn't it true a lot of the projects are funded by governments and military, especially both in China and United States? So if you work for Drapa, even if you're doing research, isn't it true that you know that someday your work will be used for weapons? <laughs> No. 
What do you do? You know the mission statement of DARPA? It's, it's a part of you. The the mission statement of DARPA is to prevent technological and strategic surprise. It's not to make weapons, right? Obviously, there's interest in making weapons. It's a military agency. But what is fundamentally not understood outside of the United States research enterprise is that. The US military is the biggest funder of basic science. And look, it would be silly to claim that no general anywhere has in mind any weapons that could be developed. But the fact is, they fund basic science, right? This is how it works. All of the research that we do is totally open, totally open, university based, no classification. We publish everything we do. Could somebody one day make a weapon out of something I do? Could there be a person in the Pentagon very excited in a nefarious way about deploying a quantum computer for something I haven't thought of? Absolutely, that's absolutely the case. But new technologies are uncontrollable in some ways, right? We can't pr predict everything, that's totally true. Um, I, I really, I, I'm always surprised in Australia by how much suspicion there is of military, this is not an attack on you, I hope you don't feel that. It, it's just, it's a general observation that people hear I get money from the military, right? You know, the Australian of the year gets most of her research budget from the US military, just for the record. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Oh, it's just true. Um, and she teaches at that other university, right? Well, it's, just, it's, just, it's just true, right? This is how science gets funded. And, and the, the view uh, that, that there's some nefarious intent behind it is, is just not the way US military research funding, science research funding works. We could go down this hole for a long time, but it is true, in the United States, MIT wouldn't exist without military so spending. Yeah. You know, I know. So let's, um, we had someone waiting very patiently here, and then we're going to end. Jaris, with you? Okay. Yeah, thanks for a great discussion. But what concerns me is the elephant in the room. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, <laughs> talk about regulation, but the context, the chasm between this discussion and our context, which is global neoliberal capitalism, it has not been raised, and it's the total framework for the discussion. We might have ducked the political economy somewhat, but we did talk about, we have, we have, seriously, we have talked about um, does overregulation stifle uh, the neoliberal belief of innovation? Um, we've also talked about whether or not um, authoritarian, certainly the collaboration between some governments and corporations um, is not part of the neoliberal model, but I think we, someone who could maybe address that very quickly is um, Hugh Gusterson. <laughs> save, <laughs> save me, Hugh, save me. Well, let me talk to it slightly obliquely. I've been listening to this conversation about military funding of research and basic research and so on. Um, I think when claims are made that an emergent field of knowledge will be revolutionary, right? I, I take those claims at face value. And if you're claiming that this is gonna be a really important new field of endeavor that may have vitally important consequences in material science and chemistry and so on, then there's a responsibility that goes along with that, which is to try and think through collectively what those implications will look like. And I appreciate that the technology is at a very early stage, it's very squishy, and it's very difficult to predict uh, what might be done with it. Um, but as Allison said, you know, people in the field of genetics and so on tried to imagine what the implications of recombinant DNA might be before the technology itself was mature. 
Uh, and I think some of this actually was because Watson, uh, of Watson and Crick, um, had um, um, uh, a biologically, um, uh, his, his son, I think it was, had a biological disease and was particularly alert to the dangers of biological engineering and so on, and built in money in all federal funding um, for biological research to think through the ethical implications through the LC program. The other thing I would say, what I was thinking of listening to, I was a graduate student at Stanford in the 1980s, where a lot of the artificial intelligence research was done. And one of the faculty I got to know at Stanford was Terry Winograd, who was the founder of Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility. He refused on principle to take any military funding for his own work. And I'm not saying that everyone should do that. It was a, a sort of heroic principle on his part, and he was so brilliant that he could fund his research without uh, going to by far the largest funder in the field. But one of the things that he was concerned about is that the military only had a particular set of applications in mind. He could see all sorts of civilian applications and he was worried that they wouldn't be given the opportunity to mature because it takes capital um, to make certain kinds of, of applications mature. And he wanted to shift capital more in that direction. And he didn't want to work in a university where the military funded so much basic research, it really troubled him that people who, would, uh, who were fundamentally anti-military and skeptical of the military, were opposed to the Vietnam War and so on, were in the final analysis dependent on the Pentagon for their funding. And he wanted to create a very different kind of structure for the funding of science. So sorry, I'm being a little bit mushy and vague here, um, but I would appeal to the scientists working on a technology that they advertise as being potentially revolutionary to, to talk among themselves and with social scientists, political scientists, ethicists, philosophers, and others about the potential implications because the implications become clearer uh, through conversation and to think about ways of setting up structures to make some consequences more likely and others less likely. The troubling thing now is that we have also another player, which are the big tech companies, which now yeah. are as powerful as small countries yeah. and are less answerable in many respects. That's right. And you know, disruption is good as far as they're concerned. And they're much less answerable than, than Absolutely. university researchers. So I, I'm just, just agreeing with the, some of the neoliberal concerns, which, which we should be concerned. Hold on, we're going to have to, we're actually running out of time. I got one more question. And Can I add one sentence? Nope. Can I? I'm going to allow Mike, Michael, at the end, everybody's going to have an opportunity to say one word. OK, there you go. So. I'm Jaris. Um, I'm from the University of Hawaii. Uh, so we're not very good at making predictions, um, but we have a lot of great historians of technological change, right? We have Lewis Mumford, we have William McNeil, Daniel Hedrick, Michael Addis. And the one thing that they all agree on in the kind of formation uh, of states and war is that when you raise the capital intensive nature of war, uh, it benefits more hierarchical states. Uh, and states themselves, right? States get an advantage uh, whenever you raise the ability for war to be more expensive. So I want to ask the security question from a slightly different way. Um, the part we don't talk about in that story is the fact that they, it also eats the insides out of the states, right? So, right, the chariot ends up collapsing the Syrian empire. Uh, artillery does the same thing in Europe over a period of time. Nuclear weapons have destroyed uh, any democratic control of war powers in the United States. Uh, and I would say drones have contributed in similar ways. Uh, so how do we think through the security fallout of quantum computing 
not because of the way that it will get used, but the way it will succeed uh, and potentially not get used, but consolidate a certain kind of state control and interest uh, from the inside out. I, I think it's an awesome question. I think it's effectively impossible to answer except in you know, really broad strokes, right? The, my view is the best thing to look at is the development of, of computers and their role in warfare and, and you know, state to state conflict, right? We now have cybersecurity as a consideration and we have cyber warfare as something that's either happening actively right now or something that is a very big threat. Um, you know, I think quantum computing is not so transparently the same. Um, quantum computing is like a special kind of computing that can solve some problems very well and not others at all. Um, we don't really know what it's good for as a whole. Um, you, could, you could actually say the exact same thing about classical computing. We don't really fully know what the bounds of computable problems are, right? We just know what's really hard right now. Um, with a few proofs, there are a few things that we've proven are too difficult. Um, so with that, it, you know, the things that we think about relate often to information security and the like. And some people like me like to uh, pontificate about much longer term, grander impacts. And you know, one that I use, and I'll, I'll summarize it very quickly, is if we can build this first scale, or this first kind of quantum uh, computer called a quantum simulator, which can solve some problems in material science, maybe you can totally change the way you design power grids because you now can, in principle, build materials that superconduct at room temperature. Right? I've skipped over all the details. But, but if, you, if you do that, I promise it's a like, more reasoned argument than it sounds, um, that if you do that, you can totally change the way we design power grids. And we know that availability of energy is kind of a huge driver of global conflict. right? So there are giant security ramifications of just that one application. Um, you know, that's one that I, would, I, I spent time thinking about, but you know, what else is out there is an exceptionally difficult question to ask, um, except to look, again, as you suggested, look to history at what lessons we can learn from the development of conventional computers. Sadly, we are out of time, but I want to really thank um, you all, but the panelists, because you've really primed the pump for discussions for um, the next two days at the Q Symposium. A lot of these questions can't be answered, certainly not in one evening. But um, you've really done us a great service in, in helping us have the perimeters for our future discussions. So, and I want to thank you all for um, a great, great evening and uh, our staff. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.